Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, August 8th. 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, August 6th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,502, that's 17502. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,503, that's 17503. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 1, Honesty and Surrender. Step 1, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step 1 is an admission of the central problem we face as compulsive overeaters our powerlessness over food, and the unmanageable life that has resulted. The way we manage our own lives brings us to the end of our rope. We hit bottom. Our ways and our efforts fail us. We are the architects of our own misery. We suffer with the juggernaut of our illness, And we suffer and we suffer until we have suffered enough to be willing to look for something better. With honesty, we admit that our efforts, our energy, our resources, our knowledge, our willpower, and our desire have not delivered the hope for results. The first step is about admitting defeat in our battle with compulsive overeating. In step one, we've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, efforts, philosophy, morality, goals, or good intentions, will not solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. With honesty and surrender, step one becomes the foundation of our recovery, the launching pad of desperation to seek and find power. Joining us today to share her experience with Step 1, Honesty and Surrender, is Deb E., a recovered compulsive overeater, formerly residing in California, now living in Israel. It's with great appreciation that I welcome Deb E. to the line this morning. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, um, thank you, Leah. I, before I start, I just wanted to say that I like writing out my shares. It helps me collect all my thoughts. And I actually typed up all the quotes I have from the big book. So if I make a mistake in reading any quote, it's because I typed it wrong. <laughs> so please forgive me. 
All right. My name is Deb E. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Israel. I discovered vision and I think it was 2018 while at the OALA birthday party that I used to attend yearly while I was in San Diego. And I just kept hearing everyone talk about a chapter in the big book. And I was like, why is everyone talking about a chapter in the big book? Why is everyone talking about a vision for you? And then I discovered what you guys were all about. And I absolutely love this meeting and how we go through the big book line by line. Thank you, Leah, so much for the opportunity to share. It's really an honor to be a part of the Vision family and to speak here today. I came to my first OA meeting over 20 years ago on September 20th, 2000, and I've never left. I have been abstinent and neutral around food since April 27, 2002. I came in not needing to lose weight, but I wouldn't call it a healthy body weight because there was nothing healthy about the way I treated my body. In my early years of sharing my story, I used to apologize for not having a story to share about some amazing weight loss, but that was before I started to accept and own my story and surrender to the truth about who I am and where I've come from. Honesty and surrender are at the foundation of my recovery and the gateway to my connection to my higher power, which is the source of everything in my life today. So my story isn't about weight loss, but it is about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind that I have as a compulsive overeater and that the big book describes to us on page XXVIII. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And then on page XXIX, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And one more quote for this section I want to read is on page 30 in More About Alcoholism. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. These passages explain to me why, as a compulsive overeater, I cannot, absolutely cannot eat my trigger foods. For me, that's anything with sugar, and that also includes artificial sweeteners. I can't eat any of those foods without triggering the allergy of the body, which is always followed by the obsession of the mind. So what does that mean in simpler terms? In my early years of reading the big book, I was really confused by a lot of the language used in this book. For me, it means that if I eat sugar, and I know this because I repeated this pattern over and over for about 14 years, that if I eat sugar, an allergic reaction gets triggered in my body and sets off a craving that has me binging on sugar. Not until I get full, because when I couldn't eat anymore, all I would do is just wait to have some more room in my stomach and go right on binging. I wouldn't stop until I just stopped from numbness. I would eat and eat and eat until I just didn't feel anything anymore. Not any of the feelings that I was eating over 
although at the time I had no idea I was even eating over any feelings. I would always feel remorseful afterwards and like a failure that once again, the food had won. Today I know why. It's because the food will always win if I let it in because I'm a compulsive overeater. That's why, plain and simple. If I take that first compulsive bite, I won't be able to stop. But the good news is that if I don't take that first compulsive bite, I won't set off that craving. And I've seen that work for me over and over. I have to remember every single day that no matter how many days, weeks, months, or years of being in a recovered state, I have none of that that I have. None of that can change the fact that I am an addict and that the only way to arrest this illness one day at a time is to surrender to a power greater than myself every day and live with rigorous honesty. If I forget step one, that I am powerless over food, then I can't recover. If I think that one day the fact will mir- that fact will miraculously change that all of a sudden I won't be a compulsive eater, that I'm just setting myself up for relapse. I will always be an abnormal eater, and that's okay because I have a program that helps me work with that and recover. Many fellows in OA have advised to listen for the similarities and not the differences. It's been a pattern of mine as a compulsive overeater to look for the differences so that I can deny that I have a problem or that I'm better or less than that person. By looking for the similarities, I identify in and find my place among you in this amazing program of recovery. If I convince myself that I am not like you because we don't share similar experiences, I miss out on the wisdom and help I could have gained from listening to you. So I no longer apologize for my story. I have learned to own it, and a lot of power and growth comes from the honesty and surrender it takes to own it. All that I feel is required from me is to share as honestly as I can and to speak from the heart. I grew up in such an average, so to speak, normal way that it's taken me many years to see the dysfunction and really read between the lines of my childhood. To see and understand the pieces that brought me to that feeling of emptiness that caused me to eat and eventually find a way. I was raised in a home that provided me with all my physical and material needs. There was always food on the table and a roof over my head. I went to private schools. I participated in extracurricular activities. I went on road trips with my family. I had friends, my own room, interests, hobbies, etc. All the things I used to think were necessary to have a great childhood. And in many ways, it was great. It all looked perfect from the outside. The physical and material needs checklist got a 100%. I knew that I was loved and never lacked for anything that I was aware of. What was missing, though, and ended up creating a God-sized hole in me, was spirituality and a connection to a higher power. My emotional and psychological needs were not attended to. Neither I or my parents knew how to attend to those needs or were able to help me with them. I thought that I had all that I needed, not knowing that I needed a whole lot more. What was growing inside of me was this emptiness that I didn't know how to fill. I knew from a young age that something was off, but I didn't know what it was, and I certainly didn't know how to fix it. The truth is that I've always been very intuitive, but before program, I wasn't trained to follow that intuition. The disconnection between the intuitive guidance I was receiving from my higher power and the messages I was receiving growing up, especially those about appearance, how to act appropriately, say the right things, not ruffle anyone's feathers, and that I should be thin to be happy, be accepted, and have a good life. 
It's that disconnection that created that empty feeling and that God-sized hole. I believe that we all recognize the truth when we hear it or see it, but it takes a lot of courage, faith, and strength to act on it and to go in the right direction. So I can see now how I had these conflicting messages that I wasn't able to reconcile. So I just did what I was trained to do. I ignored what I was feeling, buried those emotions somewhere deep within me, and started to try to fill that void with food. Around the age of 11 or 12, I started obsessing over how I would get the perfect body. I poured over fitness magazines and made lists of how to get thin and have great hair and great skin. I would weigh myself every day, sometimes multiple times per day. I would obsessively measure my chest, waist, hips, and thighs because I was never satisfied with the numbers, and my value was wrapped up in those numbers. It was completely unmanageable. I would restrict them and binge. For a few years in my early teens, I would eat 1,315 calories, 50 calories a day, and it really messed with my body. I was only focused on the outside. It never occurred to me to look inward and to try to work on what was happening internally, emotionally. So I spent 14 years obsessing over my body and not treating it with any love, tolerance, or compassion. I hated my body. It would only temporarily look the way I wanted it to, and then my weight would go back up. It was in this constant cycle of trying to control my appearance, lose 5 to 10 pounds, which to me felt like 50 to 100, and never being satisfied and always being baffled as to why it hadn't worked this time. In my mind, I was the fat girl, even though I've never really been overweight. Control and denial were the themes of those years. I thought that if I didn't get too big or too thin, that if I... Um, that I didn't really have a problem. That if I binged on things like jam, I'd eat full jars, sugar straight out of the bag, chocolate chips, icing, that I rationalized weren't real foods, that I didn't really have a problem. If I didn't exercise too much, then I didn't really have a problem. That same kind of denial seemed to convince everyone around me too. I was referred to as the health nut, always eating perfectly around everyone, and then going to binge in secret at night and in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark, and I was getting more and more sick and obsessed. By the time I found OA at 26, I was out of control of my disease. I was binging every day and couldn't stop. I was lying, and I didn't even know it. My life felt empty, even though externally I was seemingly functioning very well. I walked into my first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, terrified that I would be turned away because I wasn't overweight. What I found was a new home. I found another family of people who understood me when I described my binges and body obsessions. I am grateful that I was introduced to the big book right away and still use it as my main text today. So as long as I was in the cycle of triggering the allergy by eating my binge foods and thus fueling the obsession in the mind by obsessing over what I ate, what I weighed, calories, comparing myself to others, there was no recovery in sight. I had to have a real hard, honest look at myself and my actions and to surrender all those things and believe that there was a power greater than me that could help me. I had to have that complete psychic change that Dr. Silforth describes in the doctor's opinion. And that's exactly what's happened to me as a result of working with 12 steps. I'm a different person than the one who walked into her first meeting 20 years ago. Big book, page XXXI. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me. 
and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. And then a quote about honesty on page 30. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. Page 31. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. My definition of honesty has evolved over the years as I've grown spiritually. Growing up, I thought that honesty meant giving someone the correct change if they had made an error. However, lying about my age to pay the child price of the movies didn't register as dishonest because it was just something that everyone seemed to do. When I finally hit bottom with my out-of-control binging, it took a new level of honesty to admit that I needed help, that all my ideas had just made things worse. A month before I came to OA, I baked my husband a birthday cake and ate the entire batch of icing before it made it to the cake. I broke down and told him about my eating disorder. That was a level of honesty I had not been able to attain before that point. I had kept it a secret for the six years I had known him so far at that point. Working the steps required me to get even more honest with myself, my higher power, and another human being. I could have stopped there in terms of levels of honesty. My goal, after all, had been to be freed of the obsession of food, and I'd worked the steps. However, my intuition led me to seek out step studies and to continually work the steps. I was in a step study for the first few years in program, and then once my children came along, I found it difficult to keep the commitment, so I just continued with regular meetings. By the time I found the step study I've been in for the last 10 years, I was desperate to be in a step study once again. Working the steps over and over has really made a difference in my spiritual evolution and the deepening of my connection to my higher power. My level of honesty has grown way beyond that what was, what was required, and it has paid handsomely. Being honest at the level I am today is not for everyone, especially the level of honesty I have with my husband. I resisted it because it made me feel vulnerable, scared, and even humiliated at times, but I always feel better afterwards. I couldn't be honest before OA. It never felt safe to me. It felt way too risky. I was always afraid people would not accept or like me if I let them see the real me. I still struggle with that today, that I can hear my higher power's loving push to work through whatever it is, to own my story, even if I think it's not an acceptable one. These are some of the contrary actions that I need to take to stay recovered to say no to the disease that only wants to take me down and to stay aligned with my higher power's will. I also chose to speak about surrender because for me, I could not reach the level of honesty I'm at today without surrendering my life to my higher power. In step one, I had to admit that I was powerless over food and that really upset me. I found it so ridiculous to me. How could I be powerless over something like food? But once I got honest, I could admit that food was running my life 
and that I was indeed powerless over over it. But it still bothered me until I understood that only once I took that first compulsive bite, I was completely powerless and at the mercy of the food. We mostly talk about surrender when talking about step three, but I also see it as a big part of step one. Hitting rock bottom and taking step one was definitely a surrender for me, surrendering to the fact that I could not get better on my own. I resisted surrender at first because I held on so strongly to my will. And although I had many levels of surrender for the first 13 years in OA, I feel like I surrendered on a whole new level at the 13-year mark when I fully understood that surrender meant fully turning my life over to my higher power and honestly being okay with whatever life brings me and not just what I, you know, it's easy to surrender. For me, it's easier to surrender if I kind of get what I was hoping I would get anyways, but it's a whole other different kind of surrender when I get the opposite of what I wanted and just have to just surrender to the fact that my higher power knows better than me and that if that's what's being put in front of me, that's what's best for me and that's what my path is. Um, I don't talk about this often, but my journey to becoming a mother is one of the most powerful experiences with surrender. Already as a child, I knew I wanted to have children and I also knew intuitively that being a mother was to be part of my journey in life. So I was devastated when I reached the one-year mark of trying to get pregnant and still wasn't. I had been in OA for over a year at that point, and I was at a retreat where I met one of my first sponsors. I shared with her my feelings of hopelessness and devastation of not being able to get pregnant. And in a loving and relaxed tone, she told me that there was no rush and that it would happen in a few years as if that timeline was something I should be happy about. Side note, my oldest child was born almost exactly two years later. I don't think she knew that, but it was pretty amazing that it happened that way. I instantly hated her and thought she was very mean for saying that. My feelings were very hurt. I think that the message she was trying to get across was that I should focus on the steps and recovery first and good things would follow. I don't remember the exact timing of it, but I clearly remember throwing myself onto my bed and crying out to my higher power to help me get through it, I surrendered to whatever his will for me was to be, whether that meant I was going to get to be a mother or I wasn't. And that was a huge turning point because I, up until that point, I didn't want to accept that it was a possibility that I wouldn't. That intuition I had from birth was telling me that I would have children, but my higher power had other plans for me first. Today, I'm grateful that I had over two years of program in me and that I got abstinent before my eldest was born. My children only know me to be abstinent, and that is one of the greatest gifts that my higher power in working this program has given me. I couldn't give them what I have given them if I had still been in the food. For years, I thought that pregnancy would be my free time to finally eat whatever I wanted, and it wouldn't matter how much weight I gained. Well, it was quite the opposite. I didn't eat my binge foods no matter what, even when nothing else looked appetizing. To have been able to gain pregnancy weight and lose it without abusing diet and exercise for each of my five children without the craziness of the disease is truly a miracle to me. Another example of surrender is my move to Israel that I've talked about on this meeting before. It is another example in my life of being so clearly directed by my higher power and having to surrender at every step in the process. There's a certain order, a logical one, that people usually follow in this process. 
ours was almost entirely done backwards, which to a lot of people seemed crazy and illogical. But what I've seen in my life is that my higher power's will is almost always counter to what my logic and brain thinks. And that actually helps me to know when it is my will and when it's my higher power's will. But that's a whole other topic. Every step we took in immigrating was a leap of faith. And there were so many times where I just had to surrender to government offices that were working at half capacity, the weeks waiting for the mail to come, all the delays. Surrender, as hard as it can be, is so good for me. It's humbling. It puts my ego in place, and it places my higher power first, which is always a good thing for me. Big book, page 13 at the bottom, um, going into page 14. Bill's story. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Today, I have a faith that I've never had before, a faith that gives me the strength to fully participate in life and not sit on the sidelines wondering if I will ever have the courage to do things. This process has in no way made my life perfect, and I still get stuck in my character defects. I still get resentful. Fear still creeps up often, but I have a design for living that works for me that allows me to break out of the prison I created for myself while compulsively overeating. I can catch myself now and turn to my higher power, my fellows and the steps rather than the food. It took me one and a half years to get back-to-back abstinence. And my abstinence was no binging, which at first I thought was too easy, but I couldn't stop on my own. I also do not eat any of my binge foods without exception, and I'm very serious about it. I'm no longer delusional about what those foods do to me. I have no interest in testing them out. They are not my food, and I have not been, and they have not been for two decades. They are toxic to me, period. I will never be able to eat them, and I'm completely content with that. All they did was bring me misery. This is a great example of how my character defect of black and white thinking is actually a huge blessing. Throughout some of my pregnancies, I couldn't eat most foods, and the only food that looked appealing to me were my trigger foods, and there was no question in my mind that I would eat them. Those moments passed, and I still gained a healthy amount of weight. It's so easy to give in to the disease. That's what it wants. It's hard to fight it, but we don't fight it alone. We have our higher powers, and we have this fellowship, and together we really can do what we can never do alone. I didn't count days of abstinence at first because for me it was too much like counting calories and weighing and measuring, which for me were a big part of the compulsion, the unmanageable life, the complete obsession. I started counting years of abstinence after I had two years and hearing a speaker share a similar story. And I didn't know the exact date up until a few years ago because I hadn't like marked down the date. And I was rereading some old journal entries, and I found a passage that I wrote saying, I have two weeks of abstinence. (laughs) And it was from April 2002 when I realized that that was, um, I just counted backwards 14 days and finally got the date a couple of years ago. But for all these years, I just didn't know it. And it didn't matter. I would just wait till April passed, and I would count from there. Big book, page 30. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness, 
over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. What I do today to maintain my abstinence is far more than what I did in the beginning. And for me, that is proof that this disease is in fact progressive. I didn't want to believe that for a long time. I didn't even want to call it a disease, but it has proven to be true. It happens naturally now that with each year of absence, I add more to my spiritual practice and how I connect to my higher power. I'm happy to keep evolving in this way and so much growth comes from it. The willingness to do more came bit by bit for me. Like I said before, it took me 13 years to truly take step three and to understand what it truly means to surrender to my higher power, to accept and embrace what comes my way, whether I'm happy about it or not. It took me 16 years to start meditating every day. Meditation eluded me for so long and I would try it for a time and then stop. I really try to pay attention to what people with long-term abstinence do And if I hear something I'm not doing, I try to add it to my daily practice. Some things still have not become a daily practice, but that's why I really like continuously working the steps because I just keep growing spiritually and keep adding more ways to enlarge my spiritual life and connect to my higher power, which is my best defense against this disease. My ego used to be so big that I didn't have space in my head to listen or benefit from other people's experiences. And today I seek out people who are on the spiritual path and try to follow their lead and learn from their experience, strength, and hope. The words listen and silence have all the same letters. I cannot truly listen if I'm not silent. OA has really taught me how to listen. Listen to my fellows and especially how to listen to my higher power and his will. And it's by listening and having courage and faith that my life has gotten better and richer one day at a time. Thank you so much for letting me share. Yes, thank you, Deb, for sharing your beautiful presentation with all of us this morning. Truly remarkable and inspirational story of transformation as a result of the implementation of the 12 steps. Thank you so very much. Deb's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment with Deb. If you have a question for our speaker, please press star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Roz R. Roz R. Wendy B. Wendy B. Anyone else at this time? Okay, let's get started with Jody, I'm sorry. Jody E. Jody E. Yes, Jody, thank you. Sherry D. Sherry D.
Jackie F. Claudia C. Jackie F. And Claudia C. Okay, that's a great group. Get started with Roz R. Please. Uh, can I? Roz R. Hi, can I be heard? Yes. Oh, thank you. I was muted. Um, Roz R. Uh, in Georgia, um, recovering compulsive overeater. Uh, Deb, I wanted to thank you so much for your share and Leah for your service. I rarely talk on the meeting, but uh, you, you said so much that I have a, I have a question for you um, that I just would love to hear uh, from your spiritual uh, insight. Um, you talked about how you moved, you actually moved out of the country and how God just worked in your life and it all took place and you knew it was the right thing. Um, during COVID, I was living in Florida for 20 years and had noticed to move and I just planned to stay there. But things took place. My daughters got involved and uh, wanted me to move to Georgia. I am here now, but I never felt good about it. I never had the um, good feeling that it was the right thing to do, but I did it anyway. And I am here now for six months and I want to know, like, how would I know that, is there a way to know, or is it possible that God wanted me here, but I really had bad feelings about doing it and now I'm struggling. I don't understand how to place God in this or how to know that this is the right place or did I, did I make a mistake? If you can share anything from your spiritual background i would love to hear it that's my question thank you um i actually have some (laughs) some stories that make make you feel better so it's really hard you know i mean for for many years i really struggled to know what was god's will and what wasn't and there's that passage and there's a part in the big book where it talks about, you know, we might make some foolish decisions along the way until like our intuition really gets well formed. And there's been many times I've been here almost a year now. And there's been many times where, you know, I've questioned whether this was right or not, but I did feel so strongly that we were supposed to be here. And those moments for me, they were just fear. Um, what I've seen is, you know, my disease loves to take any opportunity it can to scare me, to tell me I'm wrong, to tell me that it's the wrong thing to follow, follow my higher power. It's like constantly knocking at the door with that stuff. And when we got here, we had to quarantine for two weeks because we were coming from the U.S. And uh, I hadn't even been to this town before <laughs> we got out. And over the first couple of days, we went for some walks and I had a terrible thinking feeling that I'd made the worst mistake in the world. Where had I taken my family? What had I done? And you know what? It's, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. And so I guess all I can say is that I have many moments where I doubt and I go, "Uh oh, maybe I read it wrong. Maybe that wasn't my higher power's will. Maybe I just got it backwards. Maybe it was just me trying to force my will. But there's something, I'm not even sure how to describe it. There's something I just feel deep inside of me when it's the right thing. And often it's 
what I was talking about, how my brain was trying to convince me differently, but I just feel it. And I just felt like we were supposed to be here. And then I had several family members who were telling me, you know, they didn't want to be here. And that made me further feel like it was the wrong move. And everyone's kind of come along and come on board and it takes so much strength and it's, it's exhausting sometimes just sticking with that intuition. Um, but I don't know what the answer is in your case, but, um, for me, I really believe that wherever I am is where I'm supposed to be, that I'm constantly doing my power's will, whether I thought I was like listening to it or not. Like I, I am where I'm supposed to be. And what I, the, the best thing I can do is to figure out how I can be of most service wherever I am. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Deb. Thanks, Razar, for your question. Wendy B., your turn. Hi, this is Wendy B. Um, recovered in Arizona, and you might have just answered my question. I'm not really sure. About halfway through, and thank you so much for a beautiful story. I identified with a lot of it, and um, you said something helps me know when it's my will or God's will, and I didn't quite catch what you were referring to, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. And thank you. Um, yeah. So. It's that I'm trying to think of another example other than like moving halfway across the world um, that, you know, my, it's often something that doesn't seem logical, that doesn't seem rational, but that I just feel in my heart is where I'm, where I'm directed. It might not even be something I really want to do, but I feel that intuitive push and it's the kind of thing that most people would go like, well, that's just crazy. You know, I've been called, uh, it's interesting, with this move, people either called me, thought I was crazy or thought I was brave. <laughs> and to me, thinking it's brave is going coming from an intuitive place and thinking it's crazy is coming from a logical place. Because from a logical place, a lot of it does sound crazy, you know? Um, and it really took me years to to really decipher between that my will versus my higher power's will. Um, and I'm sorry I don't have like a more concrete way of explaining it. Um, it's just usually, and it's not to say like go choose the crazy thing, <laughs> but usually it's the stuff that, you know, might scare me a little bit, but it just resonates with me. I just feel feel it's right, even if it's scary. Thank you, Wendy B., for your question. Jody E., your turn. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Deb, for your story. It's a beautiful uh, testimony, very inspiring. I heard you say that it sounded to me like you said that weighing and measuring your food for you is a compulsive food behavior. And uh, we don't often hear that. Um, and I'm wondering how you've been able to manage your weight so that you maintain a healthy weight without weighing and measuring your food. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yes, it's not often heard, and I know it um, could be like a um, topic of <laughs> discussion. For me, a big like most of my disease was, you know, as a teenager, I walked around with a measuring cup. I obsessively measured and weighed things. I And it wasn't done. I have complete respect for people who weigh and measure their food, who weigh themselves, and it's a part of their recovery, and it works for them, and it's a wonderful thing for them. It's not that way in my story. Um, it was just a source, another source of unmanageability and obsession for me. Um, the, you know, weighing myself never worked. If I was over the number I wanted, I would binge because I was so upset. If I was under the number, I would binge because I was so excited. Um, I was never satisfied with the numbers I saw on the scale. I was never, I could never eat the amounts I wanted to. I realize now it's because they were just too small. You know, I'd obsessively log all my food and all my calories and I'd get to like evening time and I would be like, I did it. This is great. This is, you know, I had just what I needed. I didn't eat anything extra. And then I would start, I'd put down my food journal and I'd go to the kitchen and I'd binge on something and I'd come back and I'd change the total and then I'd go back and binge some more and I'd come back and I'd change the total and I'd go back and it would just go on all night, well, all evening until I went to bed. And so... When I came into OA, it was really important for me to learn how to eat. Um, I don't want to say normally because I am still a compulsive overeater, but I was aware of how my my like mechanism for knowing when to stop eating and when I needed to eat was completely broken. And I really wanted to be able to use the steps to be able to go out into the world and live my life amongst everyone, to not only be okay when I was in a meeting, to not only be okay in this little bubble, to be able to go, you know, I, I can go anywhere and there's a constantly surrounded by food that I can't eat because I know it'll trigger me. And it's, it's fine. It's just, I'm totally neutral about it. Like I just, I don't even think about it anymore. You know, my kids eat all kinds of stuff I don't touch. And when they were younger, you know, they'd kiss me with, like, food on their face and I'd get, like, chocolate smeared on my cheek and I'd just wipe it off. It wasn't, it's, like, so deeply ingrained in me that there, I will not eat that stuff without exception. Like, I'm, I'm really hardcore about, like, there's, there's no circumstance under which I will eat. And it would have been so easy for me to, like, have every excuse in the world, like I gave the example of when I was pregnant. And I was like, no, not even then. And I, people could argue with me that, well, that's not good. You know, you need to eat and everything. And I ate. I totally ate. I ate enough. I gained enough. My babies were born at enough level weight. <laughs> you know, like, it was all fine. And um, it, it's, again, it comes back to that intuition and going like, okay, what does my higher power want for me? And in my experience, for my story, it has been to not weigh and measure my food, and I've been really graced with being able to just, you know, eat and stop before I'm full and go, like, I'm done with this. I'm really, 
Like, it's really miraculous. The, the disinterest I have in food today compared to where I came from. Um, and so that's why I, uh, I don't weigh and measure all that stuff. But again, for other people, if they don't do that, it's, they won't recover. So I think it's really important to figure out, everyone to figure out with their sponsor what is the best plan of eating for them um, and what will work. Because I know that the way I work this is not for everybody. And I pass. Thank you, Deb, Deb. very much. Thank you, Jody E. Sherry D. Your turn to pose a question. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for your share and for everybody for being here today. Um, I have a very basic question. Um, how do I stop? I listen to meetings. I get the numbers of awesome sponsors. They say, call me in two days when you're abstinent and we'll start. That just doesn't work for me. Any suggestions? Thank you. Okay, so here's another thing that might be really unpopular. <laughs> um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't just um, put down the food. Like I couldn't get the abstinence that I have before starting to work the steps. But what I did put down, and I think this is what makes all the difference, is I did put down those trigger foods. Um, I didn't have as like strict a plan of eating as I have now when I started, but I did, I did have to get really honest that like I could not, those foods that I ate, you know, that I described all those different sugars that I binged on, I couldn't have those. And I'm pretty sure I put those away. Um, very close to the beginning. And that year and a half it took me to be abstinent was kind of playing around with that a bit, right? Like getting rid of them and then still wanting them. And it wasn't until, but I, but I was going to meetings and I had started working. I mean, my first version of working the steps was kind of pitiful. I guess it's just whatever I was um, able to do at the time. Um, but it was nothing close to like what I would consider a, a proper way to go through the steps. Um, but it got me started. And as I, you know, going to OA really ruined my binges for me. Like it took all the fun out of it, which is wonderful because it's not fun and it wasn't fun. I thought it was fun. Um, you know, I was for a long time in the beginning, I don't know how many months I did this for, I would sit in the meeting and I would think about what I was going to binge on when I got home and I'd go home and I'd binge. Like, I did not, I'm not one of those people who just like, got it right away and everything like fit together. Um, but again, those, um, so it, it's that difference between getting rid of those trigger foods that were the biggest problem. Now, there are other foods that trigger me too um, and I don't, think, it's hard to remember now, and it's why it's good to repeat my story as time goes on. I don't remember all the details that well, but um, I know, like, the jam was a big, big problem for me. I'd eat full jars of it, or, and, and I was very secretive about it, um, and that went, I mean, I don't think, I, I haven't had that since before I got abstinent, you know, that those things just had to go. I, I just wasn't going to be able to get honest in the way I had to to really start working the program properly if those foods were in my body. 
um, it just didn't work. So I would just encourage you to take a real hard, honest look at what foods you might still be consuming that might be getting in the way that are triggering that allergy and to see, you know, to write about maybe like why, what's the fear in letting them go? You know, I was, I thought people were actually lying at meetings when they said they did need sugar. I was like, it's impossible to live without sugar. I thought it was impossible to live without chocolate. I really didn't think I could live my life. Like, that's how dramatic it was in my mind. I didn't think I could live without those things, which now sounds silly to me because I know I can. I've seen it happen, you know, but I really believed that. So I had to kind of get behind that thinking, like, what am I so afraid of? What does it mean if I let go of those foods? Like, what's going to happen to me? I'm not going to die. I might face things that I really don't want to face, which is probably why I keep eating them. You know, that's what was the case for me. And it's scary to let it go, and it's really hard. It is that you have a wonderful fellowship around you. And I would just say, keep talking to people. Listen to, like, what they did. Ask them about their experience. And don't stop reading the big book and don't stop listening to people share on the big book um, and you know the miracle does come that's all thank you Sherry D for your question Jackie F hi Jackie F um, thanks so much for your share, Deb. So um, so interesting to hear your process. And you mentioned that over the course of your 20 years, at some point, you became much more honest. You mentioned becoming much more honest with your husband and in general. And I, you know, without putting you on the spot to talk about private matters, of course, um, I was just wondering if you might share a specific example or two of, you know, before and after of um, that degree of honesty. Thank you. Sure. So, um, and it's interesting because this is something, and I'll try to share as vaguely as I can because it's probably not really like a meeting answer to get like an answer to give on this platform, but I'll try to answer as best as I can. Um, there's a part in the big book where it talks about like sometimes we have to be really careful about like we don't want to hurt anybody else. If we can't just be like, you know, divulge everything if it's going to harm somebody else or something. Um, and I kind of followed that for a lot of years. Um, but there was something that I blamed my husband for. I thought it was his fault for like 20 years. And whenever he'd bring it up, I'd shut him down again and say, it was your fault. And then all of a sudden, something changed in me. And I think it's just the practice of forking the steps over and over. Like things happen in the background that I'm not always even aware of. And like I, I evolve without even noticing it sometimes until like I have an example of something happened and then I realize how I'm responding differently than I did in the past. And so in this case, the same topic came up again. And all of a sudden, I was willing to talk about it and look at it, and I realized that the blame wasn't to him. 
that he had no right in being blamed, that I had a big part in it. And that took a huge, like a way bigger level of honesty that I'd ever been willing to look at. And I know that the only reason I was willing to even look into it and question whether I was to blame or not was all the four steps I've done, all the steps, you know, doing them over and over where I'm, I'm trained to look at my part. And this was just something that I had just, for some reason, not been willing to look at. And I really do believe also that my hair power didn't think I was ready to look at it until that point. And it's, it's been amazing. It was brutal. And I have something in that whole experience kind of cracked me open emotionally and I've cried more in the last three years than I think I have in my entire life <laughs> and I've changed I my emotions are you know coming to OA in the first like bunch of years I got way more in touch with I got in touch with my feelings I wasn't even aware of them before I got but this was a whole new level and I'm so grateful that I pushed through all the difficulties of dealing with it because my ego wants so badly to like say like let you know convince me that everyone else is wrong and one of the character defects is self-righteousness and um it just it's it's opened up and I said it's not for everyone because there are you know I've shared the details of that story with some sponsees and they're like, well, I can't go there. I can't be that honest, you know? And I'm not saying that that will work for everyone, but in my case with the way I am and the way my husband is, um, reaching that new level of honesty has really been quite amazing. Um, it's been brutal. It's been really hard. I felt very vulnerable and I don't like to feel vulnerable. As a compulsive reader, I will do everything I can to avoid feeling vulnerable. <laughs> Um, but it was, I hope that wasn't too vague for you. I hope that answered your question. Thank you, Jackie F., for your question. Claudia C., your turn. Yes. Hi, sorry. Hi, this is Claudia. Um, Deb, thank you so much. Um, it was, it was so amazing. Um, my question was very similar to the last person's. Um, so I, I heard an awful lot that I needed to hear. Um, so I just want to say then that, um, like some of the things that I, I, um, got from you was about, um, the fear um, being part of the disease that, you know, like after making a change, um, wanting to know if it was right or wrong. Um, so I, I was wondering, um, I guess, geez, I'm sorry. Cause I, there, a lot of my questions were answered, but, um, I guess I'll go to, um, since my husband isn't a compulsive overeater, um, and I was wondering if, how does that work for you in your relationship um, with him? Um, 
with your your honesty and you know your differences and you know as as the disease still progresses i guess that's my question thank you sure thank you so yeah my husband is one of the most normal eaters i've ever met <laughs> it's nothing near um our compulsion at all and um and he's not in any 12-step programs but me being in recovery for this song has really like I hear a lot of the messages back from him often um, and he'll be the first to admit like he'll say like you know I he's, he he's heard so much about 12 steps and and higher powers will and all that stuff um, and in the beginning I would talk, like, I'd start to, I was all excited that I found OA. He's actually the one who found OA for me. I was um, desperate to find help, and I would, I had looked up, this was back when we had the yellow pages, and I wrote, like, I copied down, like, three pages worth of phone numbers for psychologists, and every day of my lunch break at work, I'd go sit in my car, and I'd call them to try to find someone and then my husband was the one who found OA and the phone number and, and how to go about getting to a meeting um, and I was all excited and I I would share stuff and he's like he was trying to be as supportive as he could but he's like I, I don't really understand you know like he just can't the same way like anyone who's not a compulsive reader can't get it they don't understand what we go through they don't understand our experience with all this stuff um, but he's always been super supportive. He's always been supportive of me going to meetings, making sure I had that time to leave the house and go to meetings, even when I had babies. And um, and he's been really helpful. I feel like um, a mistake I made, and this is where, like, you know, my self-pity comes in and my, you know, this, like, poor me song I like to sing to myself. <laughs> um where I just, I took that as to, okay, I just shouldn't share this stuff with him anymore. And what I missed out on and what he missed out on for years, and now I tell him a lot more, is that he still wanted to hear about spiritual growth. He couldn't relate to the food stuff, like the specific food stuff. Um, but most of my experience has been about my spiritual growth, and so I could have shared that. Um, and I guess it depends on you know, what your partner is like. But I happen to have a husband who's interested in hearing that and um, and wanted to. And so that was something I felt like um, that's another, like, that's another thing for me that's in the whole subject of honesty, right? Because I tend to make assumptions about what people want or think and in that, I'm really robbing them of making their own decision. And so I could have just said, you know, to, I've had this amazing, like, spiritual awakening. Um, do you want to hear about it? And he would have said yes. But I did the, like, poor me thing and go, oh, well, he can't. He doesn't understand the food stuff, so I shouldn't share anything. You know, that's where the black and white thinking that I talked about before that was so amazing with, like, the food stuff is not good with the, well, then if you can't relate to one part, then I shouldn't share anything at all, you know? So um, that's another honesty thing where it's been a good lesson for me to 
not just think I know everything again, like my room is part of as well. And to just like say, just try just to be vulnerable. And honest and go, I have something really amazing I discovered through working the steps. I'd like to share it, you know. And I don't know if I've wandered way too far off from what your question was, but um, <laughs> that's what I need to think of. Thanks. Thank you, Claudia C., for your question. Anyone else have a question this morning? Star 1 to unmute. I'll need to Anita J. Jennifer H. Jennifer H. Tamara C. Tamara C. Christina J. Christina J. Did you hear me, Leah? I didn't. Pedro B. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you. Judith R. Judith R., is that correct? Yes, Leah. Okay, great. All right, that's a good group. Let's get started. I've got Anita J., Jennifer H., Pedro B., Tamara C., Christina J., and Judith R. So let's get started with Anita J, please. Okay, thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Deb. It was wonderful hearing you um, related to so much. I, I wondered what you think about I, I This has been my latest insight, and I think I heard it in you, too, is that resentments block the love. And I wonder if you relate to that and what you would have to say about it. Thank you. Yeah, I did say something about that. I'm trying to remember what I said exactly, but that it's, you know, it's that, like that line in the big book where it just, it blocks us off from the sunlight of the spirit. Um, I really believe my higher power has been there for me all along. Um, and I heard the guidance all along, but for many years while I was in the food, I just, decided not to listen to it and I can see when I look back how those were not that was not the I mean it was the right path for me to take because it got me to where I am but it wasn't the spiritual path and that's the one I really prefer and when I'm just caught up in resentment I can't I'm just not I'm not available I'm not present it's the same way for me as when I was busy in the food and binging I just wasn't around for anybody. I couldn't, I wasn't available. I wasn't present. I was there and I was speaking to them, but I was just kind of vacant. Um, and I'm, I'm capable of so much more love now. Um, you know, to be able to receive love has been harder for me than to be able to show love. Um, and I still struggle in moments with feeling like I don't deserve it. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's just a practice. <laughs> it's a practice remembering every day that 
and my higher power, I believe that my higher power wants the best for me. I don't think my higher power wants me to, you know, mire in my character defects. Um, I believe that my higher power wants me to be to be open to all the love that there is that I can receive and that I can also give. Thanks, Anita J., for your question. Jennifer H., your turn. Good morning, and thank you to you both. You mentioned that there were some practices that people generally do daily that you um, were, became willing to incorporate into your daily practice. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your decision to do this, if you had resistance, and practically speaking, what helped you to do these and what were they? Um, just to give a couple of examples and maybe your process and some practical tips. Like, for example, I don't know how to get on a 10-step train. <laughs> I imagine it's a small supportive group of people that you call or text. Um, you know, so things like that elude me. And uh, maybe you could speak about your own process in, in implementing some things. Um, thank you. Sure. Um, so actually... A 10-step train is something I would love to have, and I want to be completely honest that I don't have one yet, and I feel like I'm hoping that that's one of the next things that I can um, that I can work into my daily program. I think my morning routine is probably a good example that I can kind of give you my evolution of what happens, and um, I've been listening to podcasts from the LA Intergroup for many years, and Often, there's a question for the speaker that is, what's your daily, you know, what's your morning 11-step routine? And I would hear different things be like, oh, I should do that. <laughs> so I started off with just prayer. And I would pray, um, and then I would read some OA literature. And it was a pretty quick, short routine. And then... I started adding more prayers. So one of the things um, in the step study that I'm in is that we have like a practical application for each step. Um, so like the step 11 practice really helped me develop my daily meditation practice because every time we got step 11, I had to meditate every day for like two weeks. <laughs> and so it got me like trying different forms of meditation to see what would stick different amounts of time and it's the same with like different prayers so at first I think I just started with I had some like religious prayers I would say in the morning and then I added the third step prayer you know I had to memorize it one year for my step study and so I just started saying it every year um, and then I added the seventh step prayer so in my prayer I say I have a few prayers that are like religious prayers that are outside issues but then I say um, the third step prayer and I say the seventh step prayer and I also say I forget if it's called the same Francis prayer it's a prayer that's in step 11 in the AA 12 and 12 page 99 or something like that it's the one like um, let me look to be to forgive rather than be forgiven let me be bring light to the darkness I can never I don't memorize things well <laughs> but hopefully you know what I'm talking about and so I do all those prayers and then um, 
I would read just from like one daily reader from OA and then I started reading from another one and then uh, for a while I would read like pages, you know, like 84, 85, 86, like those, the ones um, about step 11 in the morning and then what was easier for me to really have it sink in was I have like a few little cards that I keep with my, like I have a bag of all my OA stuff that I use every morning and I wrote out, like, in a personal way, all the directions um, that it says in the big book, uh, like, please help direct my thinking today, please help me pause, and all that. I wrote it in a way that speaks directly to me. Um, and I also, uh, for the last, like, year and a half or so, added to, I read out, like, after I'm done six and seven, I always have a list of my character defects and a list of the contrary action, and I have to, like, practice the contrary action. So I read out all the contrary actions every morning. So, like, let's say my character defects, dishonesty, and the contrary action is honesty. So I'm reading the word honesty every day at the beginning of the day, and it really, it's really done, like, wonders for me because it's just all these, I guess it's almost like affirmations, like, it, it just, reinforces all that stuff that I'm trying, the way I'm trying to live, you know, what I'm working towards. And then I started meditating, and I could only meditate a couple of minutes at a time. And then I was meditating five days a week, but on the weekends, the whole thing fell apart. <laughs> work. Like my routine, I just had my weekday routine, I didn't want to work on the weekends. And then I finally got the weekends involved. And then it was like, I think like five minutes every day, seven days a week. And then I worked it up to 10 minutes and I tried like silent meditation and I tried meditation with music and I tried meditation with like, like just deep breathing and saying like breathing in um, the contrary action of a character defect, exhaling the character defect, things like that. Um, and then for, uh, I don't know how long it's been, like a good six months probably, I've been using guided meditations and some of them are longer than 10 minutes. Some of them are like sometimes they're, um, you know, mostly I average about 10 minutes, but some days it's like five minutes and some days it's 12 minutes and sometimes it's 18 minutes and it just kind of varies. And that's what's been working for me recently. And then I resisted writing for so long, which is really ironic because, um, I kept journals from the age of eight until 23. So writing was not unusual for me. And I've been writing a lot in OA over the last, uh, couple of decades, but I just would not write every day, but that was another thing where I was like, hmm, a lot of people with long-term abstinence write every day. I should probably write every day, you know, and um, and this openness to be willing to try different things has really just come, I feel like it's just this practice of like, no, I'm not going to look at what I want. I'm going to look for what my higher power is guiding me to do, and that's helped me to be open to adding more things, and so I started with some um, I did a year of, like, OA has two books, workbooks that go with, like, a daily reader. I did a year of each of, like, so two years of that, and then I ran out of books for that, so I got another 12-step book um, that had a reading and a writing, like, space to write every day, and now I have I'm on my fourth year of this, I guess, so um, I have a book that I ordered that I thought would have space to write in it, but it's just the reading, so I just write in my journal. 
whatever, like I'm prompted by. So this takes a lot longer than it did in the beginning when I was only doing prayer. <laughs> but I also have gotten so much more out of it, and I've grown a lot from it. And I, I love starting my days that way. And so I hope that gives you enough of an example. Thank you, Jennifer H. Pedro B., your turn. Good morning. This is Christina J. from the state of Washington. Thank you. Hold on one second. I'm asking OB at this point. And oh, okay. Sure. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Deb. Uh, I'm so grateful that I came to this meeting. Uh, I, I am on step one once again. And uh, what I heard was uh, amazing and just what I needed. Um, uh, I'm hoping that uh, I heard you say that uh, you wrote down, uh, you share. I'm hoping I can get a copy of it um, uh, somehow. But anyways, um, my, my story is that I keep relapsing and, and I went on vacation recently and I relapsed one more time. And I stay abstinent for uh, for a period of time, and then I put my trigger foods right, and then uh, for some reason I go back. My my disease, my mind, always goes back to uh, to the sugar and the flour and the fried foods and and the big amounts of foods that I eat. Um, and my question to you is, how can I stay abstinent from my trigger foods somehow? Yeah, so um, I don't have the experience of relapse, so I don't want to be disrespectful in any way. If I don't know what that feels like, so I, I hope I'm I can answer in a way that honors that. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, to I would ask myself like, why why is the food still appealing? What is it that's pulling me back? What am I, what do I not want to look at? What if I have left out? Is there anything? Because for me, like if I'm looking at food, there's probably something I haven't worked through in the steps. There might be something on my fourth step that I was too afraid to put down because I didn't think I could talk about it with another human being. Um, there might be a resentment that just feels too big to deal with, what I hear is it's, it's usually related to fear, right? It's either the fear of, like I was saying before, like what will happen to me if I don't have these foods? Like it was really a terrifying thought for me. I just didn't think I could manage without them. And so that's a real thing to look at. And um, it, it's just, I think it's, there's probably something there and that's where the surrender comes in and the honesty. It's like, have I been as honest as I can be? Have I really surrendered? Or, you know, what I talked about, like I feel like it really, it took me like 13 years to really surrender. And I was surrendering along the way. In those 13 years, it's not like I didn't take step three. I was taking it and I was surrendering a lot of things, but I wasn't surrendering everything. Um, and... So that could be another question to ask yourself, like, is there something I'm not willing to surrender? Is there something I'm not being honest about? And it can be tricky, especially if we're still 
in the food, it's, you know, like I mentioned, I didn't even know I was lying because I was in the food. Like, there's so many things there's that the awareness around it only comes when the food's put away. Um, and so I would, I would probably just encourage, you know, really digging deep on those things and to figure out if there's, if there's stuff you've left out, if there's stuff that you're like, you know, because as an addict, I just, I just want to go like, oh, I'll just do the bare minimum and hope for the best, right? But we know that half measures don't avail us anything that they don't get us to the level of recovery that we want. And it doesn't mean like we get perfect lives, lives afterwards. Um, but we need, we need to kind of go all the way with honesty and surrender and working the steps and trusting our higher powers um, in order to, to move forward. I pass. Thank you, Pedro B., for your question. Tamara C., your turn. Good morning. Good morning. This is Tamara C. in California. Uh, Deb, thank you so much for your story. Uh, I appreciated that you talked about um, like surrendering when you don't get what you want, that, we, um, that God's will is sometimes counter to our logic. So my question is, uh, when you're in that place of um, not liking reality, um, could you share any specific action that you take to get, you know, to give up that logical thinking and get to the place of surrender? Thanks. Sure. So the first thing I thought of was I'll catch myself often. Like, I'll start to pray. Like, like for example, my a couple of my kids just had to get, like, sent into quarantine because they were at a camp where somebody... Um, they were exposed to some camper who tested positive for COVID, and so they got sent into quarantine. They had to go take them for these COVID tests. And my default thinking takes me to, oh, please let the result be negative. And I catch myself, and I go, please let me just surrender to whatever God's will is for me. <laughs> right? But I really want to say, I just want it to be negative, you know? But I know that when I surrender it usually ends up being something I'm happy with. <laughs> and a lot of that is from cultivating this attitude of whatever my higher power has in store for me is good. Even if it is not something favorable, it's actually good because it has me in line with what I'm supposed to do. You know, I grew up with this mentality that I'm in charge of everything. I kind of rule my life. Um, not thinking at all about a higher power. And the way I think today is I have a higher power directing me and I need to do the best job I can every day to find out what that is. What am I supposed to do every day? I pray for guidance every morning. I surrender every morning to say, like, what, you know, what does my higher power need for me today? Not, please, let this happen, that happen, this happen, that happen. Um, and because I've, you know, worked on having this attitude of whatever happens is good, um, it's helped me get through moments where I'm like, you know, where it feels like things really suck. Um, but I'm connecting to this idea that ultimately this 
what my higher power wants for me in that moment. And the more I accept it and the more I surrender to it, the happier I'll be. If I just keep fighting it, I'm just bringing on, like I'm not going to win and I'm just bringing on more misery. Thank you, Tamara C. Christina J., your turn. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for your service, and uh, thanks for the share, a wonderful share, and so much of what you said and your answers really kind of addressed my concern, which recently has been my husband is really pushing for a relocation across the states, and um, in my lifetime growing up, I had many relocations. I was never in a school for more than six months growing up, and so uh, it served me well for part of my life because I was on, you know, musical tours and stuff, and that was great. I could get up and leave, no big deal. But now it's different. And I, you shared about getting kind of a clear intuition, even though you were scared to death. But I'm scared, and I um, am not compulsive, impulsive anymore because of this program, and I just don't get up and leave. So what I found in the past is that higher power has put a dead stop to things that aren't good for me if I start taking steps towards it. This time I have no clue as to whether this is good or not. And in prayer and meditation I get, don't worry, you don't have to worry, I'm going to guide. So in my question to you is, have you been in those places where you just don't know and you've taken step towards something and God has stopped it, and then you get your answer. Thank you. I'll pass. I mean, I feel like I still don't know. I feel like there's some things I'll really never know, um, whether they're good or bad. Like, I really like analyzing things, and I like going like, oh, now I get it. Oh, now I understand. But but really, like, I can't even com- start to comprehend what my higher power understands. Like, I just don't have that capacity. Um, and that's a big reason why I have this higher power that is capable of so much more than I could ever understand as just a human being. Um, and you know, there's still some things where I'm like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It seems okay so far, but I don't know. Like, I don't know what my kids will tell me. And, like, I know what they're telling me now. I don't know if they're going to tell me in 10 years. I don't know how they're going to look back on this. Um, I feel like I'm really in line with my higher power as well. And I hope that the challenges that we've been through and that my kids have been through will all ultimately be for good, and I think a lot of that, from what I've seen for myself, depends on the way I look at it. Um, like I was just saying before, if I really believe that my higher power wants the best for me, then I don't need to fear. I need to just trust that I'm on the right path. Um, I don't know that I really have the best answer for you. I think it's just, you know, like what you shared, like just continuing to pray and trust and um, and making sure, you know, all I can do is pray for the guidance, surrender, be as honest as I can, tr- 
try to stay out of the way, try to keep my character defects in check, own up to things when I make a mistake, when I'm wrong, and, you know, I want, I want to know, like, I like, I like having sure answers, but it's in the spiritual world, like, there aren't, like, cut and dry answers, you know, it's not like science, it's not, um, and there's a lot about that that I really like, um, but there's there's a beauty in not knowing too of just going like okay I'm just gonna follow I'm gonna follow this guidance and more will be revealed and I will see where it takes me even though that can sound really really scary at times you know I hope that helps I'm not sure I answered your question <laughs> thank you Christina J and our final question for the morning comes from Judith R. Thank you, Leila. Thank you, Deb. Judith R. Recovered in Vermont. Um, Deb, I lived in, in Israel for a year and a half in 1976, and I just would love to know how OA is doing in Israel these days. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Actually, this is the first time I've moved somewhere where I have not made sure I have meeting. I mean, I did look for meetings before I came, but everything was closed. Anyways, I couldn't actually go to any meetings, um, and I am still so attached. I tried. I tried a meeting, a big book meeting in Hebrew, and I realized that I, I didn't have enough of a command of the language at that point to know if there was good recovery at the meeting or not. So um, that is something I'd like to do. Things haven't really opened up that much as far as I know for meetings yet. So I'm still very attached to my San Diego meetings. I still go to LA meetings. And of course I have vision. So I still go to tons of meetings a week, but I have not found a regular um, meeting here yet. So I hope to have an answer for that at some point, but I don't have one today. Thank you, Judith R., for your question. And thank you so much, Deb, for giving so much of yourself this morning with this inspirational presentation and remarkable recovery that you shared about. Thank you so much. Again, the share ID for today's presentation, 17,512. That's 17512. We're going to close now. From page 164, it's found in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. 
May God bless you and keep you. Until then.